Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 38 on April 22nd, 2021. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. With each episode of Air Medical Today, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The audio podcast is indexed on iTunes and the video version is on YouTube. For additional information about the guest on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Air Medical Today website. If you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. Today, I'm interviewing Mr. Robert Tester, the Senior Director of the Life Force Air Medical Service of the Erlanger Health System in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Before we get to the interview, I want to go over some feedback from previous episodes and provide some general updates. As I announced before, Air Medical Today is also a video podcast now. As always, you can listen to the podcast and now watch it on the new Air Medical Today YouTube channel. The link to the channel is on the Air Medical Today website. If you have not listened to past podcasts, please take the time to do so. There's some great information on how many of the large air medical consortium programs operate, as well as how they are reacting and adapting to COVID-19, including handling the stress that has been caused for frontline staff. Please tune in to these informative and timeless podcasts. I would also like to thank the followers of Air Medical Day on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. To date, Air Medical Today has 28,270 likes or followers, and it is increasing every day. Thank you very much. It is my pleasure to welcome Robert Tester, the Senior Director of the Life Force Air Medical Service at Erlanger Health System on the podcast today. Robbie has been with Life Force since 1998 when he started as a flight paramedic. He has held several positions in the program, including program manager, administrator, vice president, and now senior director at Erlanger. His current position includes not only Life Force, but system-wide emergency management and the regional operations center. Along with being a paramedic, Robbie holds a bachelor's of science degree in healthcare administration from Georgia State College and a master's in business administration from Western Governors University in Tennessee. He has been involved with a number of associations and committees and currently is a board member of the Association of Critical Care Transport. Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast, Robbie. It's really great to have you here. Thank you, Edward. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Well, the first thing I want to do is uh, congratulate you uh, on your 2021 Leadership Award with the Tennessee Ambulance Association. I saw that uh, in a newspaper article, you know, because I check out all kinds of RSS feeds and uh, this is a great achievement. What specific things were you recognized for? 
Well, first and foremost, I, I appreciate the, the acknowledgement. Um, my uh, team nominated me for the for the state award, and nice. Uh, we've been uh, members of of the association way before I ever uh, became part of Life Horse, and um, it, it was a combination of things. I, I believe when I read back the the nomination, if you will, um, it, it had a lot to do with the things that we've accomplished this year with COVID. Um, uh-huh. COVID response at Erlanger uh, landed um, in in. The division of life force from an emergency management perspective. So a lot of it had to do with that. Um, just our years of service uh, to the state of Tennessee through the years and our growth there and how we supported them. Um, my, my involvement with the, with the state, I chair the state air ambulance committee, which is a, um, a subset of the state of department of health. And I've been oh. the chair of that committee for eight years. And I think it was just a culmination of things. I, I, I felt that, um, it was an award one for the service, not necessarily for me uh, specifically. Uh, obviously, uh, we we've got a great team at Life Force and uh, a, a great bunch of leaders. So, um, I think it was just a culmination of uh, things through the years. Yeah, well, it's it's nice to be recognized for that. How how big is the Tennessee Ambulance Association? Is that a you know it's all? a state it, it's a statewide organization. Um, you know, I would want to say there's about 120 services across the state and that is comprised of um, air and ground uh, ambulance services primarily ground honestly um, yes right. because they're just a lot larger than the air ambulance services but I, I'm, I'm guessing about 130 140 services across the state are members yeah is there a um, Ames chapter in Tennessee too or is that Separate. We do not have an yeah. AIMS chapter. Um, we do have a very active um, state air ambulance committee, and it's, it is comprised of uh, all the licensed ambulance services, um, licensed air ambulance services across the state. Yeah. And we do, um, we, we do have good participation there. We're able to um, work things that are uh, beneficial to the air ambulance services in the state, um, working with the Department of Health and allows us to accomplish the things that we need from a regulatory licensure equipment, uh, the, the type of mission, um, things of that nature. Well, um, in going down some of the awards here, I, I noticed also um, in 2020, you received the uh, Ames Excellence in Transport Leadership Award, which uh, again, congratulations. That's a big, big achievement. And also uh, Southeast Tennessee Red Cross Healthcare Heroes Award. So, uh, Tell us about those and how, um, what things you were uh, recognized for. Well, again, I, I appreciate that. The, um, the Ames Award, I was extremely uh, honored and uh, humbled by that award, uh, looking at the recipients that have received that um, through the years. Uh, I'm not sure how I, I was picked, but uh, I'm very appreciative nonetheless. I, again, I, I looked at it from uh, receiving it on behalf of the program. We, uh, we've accomplished a lot in our almost 33 years of history, and um, it's been a, um, a very stable program. I, I was very fortunate uh, to, be the, to be the third program director in, in the program's history in 33 years, so I had really good mentors and leaders, and I have a great leadership team and, a, and, a, and over right around 100 clinicians, so we're able to, to really do some, some really nice things across the state to benefit our patients and, and support the health system as a whole. Uh, I think if looking at the nomination, which I wasn't aware of at the time, um, you know, things were focused on our growth, um, our quality programs, um, our team composition, the requirements we have for our teams. 
<clears throat> the partnerships that we have with EMS, we have a large outreach education program uh, that we go out and do a ton of free education for our first responders, EMS agencies, um, supporting hospitals, things of that nature. You know, we, we focus a lot on leadership and leadership development uh, at the program. And, you know, we support the MTLI program and, and others that we try to bring up new leaders in um, to, to try to set a foundation for secession planning, you know, in the future. And that's always been very beneficial, you know, to us as we, as we grow. Um, we're fortunate enough to not have a tremendous amount of turnover um, at the program. And, and I attribute that to the foundation that was set way back in, in 1988 when the program started. Uh, so honored to receive the award, but again, I, I look at it as as an award that um, that is for the program, uh, not necessarily for me. I'm fortunate enough to lead lead the organization, and um, but I, I do that on the shoulders of many people yeah. that uh, that make it easy for me to do that. Sure, it, um, it, it takes a team, but it takes good leadership to to receive that. Did you um, receive that virtually because of the COVID? I did. I yeah. did receive it virtually, um, you know, <laughs> which we've been members um, such as organizations you've been a part of for, for many years, way back when the ass beams and, and that organization. So life force has been a, you know, a, a legacy member, if you will, of Ames for many years. So I attended AMTC for many years. And uh, so it was a little bit disappointing not to do that in person this year, but with the pandemic, um, you know, it just kind of is what it is, but uh, I was very, um, still very fortunate to have received the award. Yeah. But then talk about the Red Cross uh, Heroes Award. What's, what's that all about? Yeah. So uh, again, I, I've said this a couple of times, um, the hospital, um, the Erlanger Health System did nominate me uh, for the Red Cross Award this year, and, oh. and it was solely related to um, the leadership and, I guess, the path that was set forward with COVID-19. Um, I was asked by the hospital's um, CEO when this first started to step in and serve as the instant commander uh, for the health system's response for COVID. Um, so uh, I did have to step away from the program for about six months and, and solely focus on our response to the pandemic. Oh. And so um, while I have good leadership, I have great operations support and, and, and the folks did a phenomenal job uh, while I was kind of absent for, for a few months there. But it was solely about bringing the whole health system together to respond to this, um, this pandemic. You know, the Erlanger Health System is a tertiary quaternary centered, um, you know, level one trauma, pediatric, uh, level three, four NICU. So we are the region safety net hospital. And so, um, you know, it was looked upon us to shoulder the burden of a lot of the response to COVID. Um, like everyone else, it was a learning game. Um, and it took many organizations coming together and, and leading the charge from the health department to our other sister hospitals in, in Chattanooga and Hamilton County. Um, so it was a 24-hour operation, you know, really for th three or four months, uh, assuring that we're prepared and, and how we're responding to the surges and, and things of that nature. So, again, I, I, was, I was nominated and, and very humbled to have received it, but I had a great team and still have a great team to this day related to COVID from infectious disease physicians, respiratory therapists, um, you know, just everyone ancillary services, nursing in the hospital that, that really come together. And I, I've never seen better teamwork in my 20 plus years at Erlanger um, to, to respond to this. Um, it but, really put emergency management out in the forefront um, when this happened. Yeah, that, that's fantastic, Robbie. I mean, I didn't realize that you had taken off some 
time, you know, from directly managing the program to, mm-hmm. so were you in charge of the, the uh, incident response or disaster planning for the hospital system already? Yes, you know, emergency management has been reporting up through my areas uh, for really the, about the past four years. Um, it really um, came to head when we had some dis- disasters here in the local area. Um, you know, we had the, 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 the terrorist event where uh, the, the shooter, you know, unfortunately killed five servicemen um, here in Chattanooga, followed by some pretty significant uh, weather events, tornadoes, et cetera. And, and we've had some IT failures, uh, which can cripple a health system in, in a matter of seconds. So we've had multiple events over the last three or four years that really put emergency management on the forefront and, and, and just reemphasize the need and the importance of planning. And I have some great people in emergency management. My, my operations manager, uh, Jerry McDonald, which started as a flight paramedic, leads that on a day-to-day basis. And, and he um, and, and all of us do a ton of planning. And we were doing that prior to COVID, uh, which fortunately just rolled right into place uh, when the pandemic started. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's, it's fantastic experience. I, um, when I was at Duke University, I also had the responsibility for the emergency management. And um, uh, we put in the hicks or hikes, how uh, yep. people pronounce it different ways. Did you use that type of system? We did. We, yeah. We've been users of that, of the hospital incident command system for, for many years. And yeah. um, luckily, you know, with our nursing counterparts at the facility, we do a lot of training on that. We require any of our um, AOCs that, that take call for the hospital uh, on a weekly basis to have their ICS 100 through 800 training mm-hmm. because they, they may be the first person to be the incident commander until right. some of us arrive and we can get stable. Um, so we put a lot of emphasis on training of our house supervisors, our administrators, our, even our chiefs. Um, you know, are required to take the training and they take it very serious. And we, and we do a lot of training throughout the year in our command center and, and uh, going to paper operations was a big deal for us when we had an IT failure um, about two years ago. Now uh, we had to put a lot of those uh, training practices actually in use, you know, for several days while we, while we dealt with the situation. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's a great system to, have in place. And you're right about the training we at um, Duke, I had put it in. uh, It was before nine 11, you know, and we had put and trained it. And the the biggest things that uh, I think people had trouble with is the, you know, CEO and stuff. Well, well, I'm always in charge. No, I said, well, yes, but you might not be here. You know, you could be traveling. Someone has to be trained to, to run the program. And uh, uh, that was a big, um, shift in in thinking but boy did that work for 9-11 and then of course sure. after 9-11 then it became more of a requirement uh through jaco um you know with the the joint saying that you had to have some type of system mm-hmm. in place and we were just lucky to have that but boy it helped us really assess and i'm sure like you with the it and and with covid really assess where the weaknesses are what things that we need to look at um you know. It did. And, you know, in an incident like this, especially I think the pandemic really um, brought this to light that you, you may have these weather events that last 24 hours or 48 hours and maybe lasting a couple of days. But um, you have to have a plan for, for a long period of time like the pandemic. You know, you can't have a single point of failure 
one person can't be the person all the time right. uh, when you do this. I know when, when the pandemic you know, started, we ran our command center 24-7 for about two months just dealing with the unknown, you know, so we had to have multiple people trained in, in how to do this and how to respond. You know, you brought up a great point related to, you know, the, the, the CEOs and, and those folks that are ultimately in charge. I think it was a great um, you know, testament for Erlanger's leadership that the CEO, when this pandemic started, um, not because it was me, but put emergency management in charge. It, it would be easy to step out in front and go, I'm running the show here. But I think everyone realized that this is going to be a big thing and we really need to lean on the people that are trained to do this and lead us in that you know, uh, direction that we need to go. And I've never seen um, a group like our C-suite respond uh, favoritively in, in that regard because they, they did. They just said, you, you tell us what we need to do, what resources you need, um, how do we need to respond um, we met nightly at seven o'clock in the evening just to talk about the day and how we're planning for the next day. We did that for a couple months Excellent. Um, in, in our, in our process, but it was, it was nice to see whether it was me or anyone else, you know, step out there, use the training that we've all had through the years and, and lead the organization in that way. Yeah. And I think the other important thing I learned was that, you know, oftentimes when there's an issue, everybody wants to be there at the same time. Yes. And you go, no, we're running this 24 seven. I need right. you rested and you come in and we need to, to turn it over. And I'm sure you uh, planned for that. Well, we, you know, we did, I think the planning certainly fell into place. It, you know, it's not, it's like everything else there, there were issues that we had to step to the right and adjust and, and, and of course, you know, you have big personalities when you talk about, you know, executives and physicians and, and, and not everyone can be in charge. And that, and that took us a few days to kind of <laughs> yeah. set the foundation there. Um, luckily, we had great leadership on the C-suite side. Um, our, our present CEO is, is a physician also. And so he was able to assist in the navigation of, of all of the different personalities um, that you encounter in something like this. And, and honestly, I, I was very impressed by our physicians as well, because they typically are in charge and they typically, you know, want to set the standard. Um, but, but these men and women did a great job and they, they fell in line, no disrespect intended by that. But they said, look, you tell us what we need to do and how we need to respond. And everybody just really came together cross service lines, which I've not seen a lot in my history at Erlanger. Uh, I'll go to the tent and, and take care of patients if I'm an OB or if I'm a, you know, whatever specialty I have, they were willing to, you know, roll their sleeves up and, and do whatever is needed. How did that work across the system too? Because it, it wasn't just the main hospital, right? Right. But, it's, yeah. you know, it took a lot of planning as things abruptly, and I'm sure like other areas of, of, of the country, things shut down immediately. It, it was kind of, you know, we saw this on the horizon coming, but it was like overnight things just shut down, especially when the governor issued the shutdown order. So we had to adjust very quickly. Um, we have eight campuses. Um, some are, you know, larger campuses, some are, are critical access hospitals. You know, so everything was a little bit different um, how we had to plan and adjust. One thing that we did make a decision on early on was the policies and procedures that are put in place are across the health system. So we're not going to adjust based on different campuses. Uh, we had to tweak a little bit, don't get me wrong, but one thing we did was try to, to lead forward with a, a common message 
uh, throughout our campuses, and that and that did help us a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, if you go back to the screening, you know, st we started off by taking temperatures and we were screening people. And, you know, that was a big undertaking across the system to have to screen. We've got almost 8,000 associates across the system. And that's a big deal that no one ever planned for. Yeah. Um, so, so it did take a little bit of adjusting from, from time to time. Well, what a, what a great um, experience that is to have done that. And again, congratulations uh, for your well, thank award. You. I appreciate that. Well, let's get in. I, I want to talk about a little bit about your background and then um, uh, Life Force. But uh, you started out, um, you went to school uh, to be a paramedic. Why did you choose uh, that field? You know, it's, it's very interesting. Um, I originally in high school um, down in North Georgia, wanted to be an athletic trainer. And oh. I, I um, was a student trainer at the time when I was in high school. And honestly, the, the thing that changed my course to this day is we unfortunately had a 15-year-old student that um, dropped suddenly with a sudden cardiac arrest. And um, watching that unfold and being, even though I was a student trainer at the time and 15, 16 years old, I was the person to do it because we did not have full-time training staff. So, you know, going through that resuscitation, seeing EMS play a part, unfortunately, did not have a favorable outcome. But honestly, that, that set the stage for me to this day. Um, and I still, I still say that still see some coaches in the community um, that I talk to regularly. Cause I think that incident, when you have a, a death of a young person that changes, that changes your life uh, forever. Yeah. Uh, for me personally, that, that set my course. Now I've varied back and forth a little bit through the years as I've matured, but uh, I originally was going to um, become an athletic trainer and uh, went to college initially to, to do that. Um, and then there was a time where, they wanted the athletic trainers to become EMTs. And so I took that path in the summer and became an EMT and, and honestly got hooked, you know, with, with EMS and, and kind of changed my course just a little bit to, to focus on EMS full time. And um, so I, I did a little more of my formal education while working EMS, became a paramedic. Um, and honestly thought that's what I wanted to do is, is be a paramedic. I worked in the North Georgia um, system for a while, like many paramedics across the, uh, the country, I worked multiple, multiple jobs and, and uh, with small ambulance services in North Georgia and eventually, you know, wound up in Atlanta uh, with what became American Medical Response. Um, and they served um, Cobb County, which is the city of Marietta, uh, as well as a lot of the city of Atlanta, Fulton County, it was a big 911 operation. And uh, so fortunate to kind of get my full time start uh, down in that area. Yeah. So was the service, um, it was formed into AMR was when they were merging? Yeah, they were, the they were, um, you know, if I, if my memory serves me correctly, um, when I went to work for the service, it was called Caroline and through multiple acquisitions, uh, I think two acquisitions while I was there, uh, became AMR. Okay. So let's, um, cover your education. I know you went, um, back to school. And I know this kind of goes in, into your work experience too, but you um, got uh, a uh, bachelor's degree in health administration. What, what, what drove that? Well, you know, I, um, I had already, you know, completed a lot of my uh, undergraduate education um, prior to getting an EMS full time. And so I went back and, and, and really loved healthcare. I just really didn't know how long uh, being a, a street paramedic 
you know, would last. Um, that's, a, that's a hard job that these men and women do every day. Um, so I wanted to, to con, you know, continue my education, not knowing where I was headed. I had been in the fire service since I was 14 years old. And oh, wow. I started off in an explorer program in Dalton, Georgia, and excellent. And wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, um, but I loved leadership. You know, and the, and the uh, in the fire service, there's a big tradition of leadership and bringing up young people and setting a standard. And so I love that that part of the you know our business in in leading and supervision. So um, <clears throat> I became a supervisor in Atlanta pretty quickly, and probably more more quickly than I should have at my age, but. I did, I did get into leadership pretty early um, at the same time, finishing my, my undergraduate in healthcare administration, not really knowing at that time what I wanted to do with it. Um, but I wanted to have that uh, there in, in the event that I needed in the future. Yeah, that's great. And then you later went back uh, with an MBA degree too, right? Uh, finish, finishing that, um, you know, this, at this time we'll be finished this year. So oh, okay. um, I went back and, um, started working on that, just, just not knowing as I get older, you know, and, and where my career is going to take me, what I, I want to do. And there's, there's a lot with healthcare that's changing, you know, you, you're in it every day, but um, I, I was very interested in going, you know, back and just seeing what's changing and, and kind of what to be prepared for in the, in the next chapter, whenever that occurs in my life. Yeah. So um, is, uh, is there a specialty in healthcare through the MBA or is there, uh, it is a, a, a master's in business administration with an emphasis in healthcare. Healthcare. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So when, when do you expect to have that? Um, I actually will be finished in June. Excellent. Wow. So that's just, uh, just around the corner. I don't know how you have the time for all this. Robbie. I mean, my gosh, <laughs> Finger, fingers crossed. Fingers. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, um, so um, you, uh, uh, went to uh, Erlanger, uh, I believe, is that um, after you were with uh, AMR? And let's talk about uh, your experience. You first became a, a flight paramedic. Is that something that was a goal of yours all along? You know, I, I always had an interest. Um, at that time, I went to uh, work for, for AMR, which became AMR in Atlanta, and w- was actually asked to come up to the North Georgia Chattanooga market to address some concerns that they were having up there. They were taking on the Erlanger uh, health system contract at that same time and, and actually needed some leadership. So it was kind of back home for me in a way. So I, I, I came back up to the area, honestly, not intending to stay, um, but wound up staying. So I uh, executed the agreement with Erlanger. We started becoming their provider, started to get into some 911 operations in Tennessee. And that lasted for, for about a year. And then uh, lots of changes with AMR and the hospital made the decision at that point to start their own um, owned and operated ambulance service. So I transitioned to a hospital employee, um, brought that service up and uh, ran that uh, operation for about two years. And yeah. that was the point that, Life Force had the first um, paramedic opening in 14 years, and it basically had no turnover in the program. My uh, gosh. It, was only, it was only a two aircraft operation at the time, and I, I was not married yet, and I said, you know, if I'm going to do this, I, I need to do it now. You know, I, this opportunity may not uh, present itself uh, again, so I threw my name in the hat and was, was lucky enough to be chosen uh, for that team, and uh, again, it was very uh, tenured. It was that at the hospital here in Chattanooga, uh, the original base, and 
um, and was just lucky enough to, to be chosen. Um, and honestly, my time as a flight crew medic, I still tell my team today was probably the best, you know, 10 plus years of my life uh, was, was flying on the helicopter full time. Yeah, that's great. I, you know, I, 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 that uh, makes sense about the turnover. I just remember, um, you know, when we started the program at Fairfax hospital, it was a bell mm-hmm. 412. And so there was yep. a national uh, affinity with, with you all. I remember getting together uh, with folks at uh, the air medical transport uh, conference, but, but wow, that says a lot about the program, you know, with that little of turnover. Yeah. Very, um, you know, from that perspective, you know, we had, um, and I know you probably know Dan Norman that started yes. the program and yep. um, he came from the military, started the university of Tennessee's program up in Knoxville. And, uh, and we modeled our program after that. This is prior to me coming uh, on, on the scene, if you will. And Danny came to Erlanger to set up a very similar program uh, to that with Bell 412s and um, just really knew what he wanted to do. And he had the board support. And uh, Erlanger originally in, in 1987, their intention was to put a ground critical care ambulance uh, in service. That was their intention and wound up with a helicopter. So um, that's how they got into the, to the business, if you will, of air medicine. And honestly, you know, Dan Norman and, and that group of people um, really set a solid foundation for the program. And, and we're still reaping the benefits of what was seeded many years ago. Um, our board at Erlanger is, is heavily invested in the program and, and take pride and ownership in, in having such a tool uh, to deploy into the region. Um, a lot of uh, these small rural communities, the only face of Erlanger they get is with a helicopter and the crews that come and get these patients. So I'm very fortunate from that regard uh, that the foundation was set by him and, and many of the others uh, way back then. Yeah, that's that's great to have. Well, let's talk about, you moved up uh, several different positions uh, before you your senior director position. Talk about those and what, what you did. Yeah, so I, um, as you mentioned, I, I flew as part of the, of the flight crew as a paramedic for roughly 10 years. Um, and, and again, we had very little turnover at that time. We um, only still had two aircraft and, and just uh, was a pretty small, tight-knit uh, group. Uh, our uh, clinical crew manager, Miss um, uh, Paula Stoltz, had been the crew manager for many, many years and had decided to step down and, and pursue other interests. And, and I was kind of encouraged by the team to, you need to go do this. You know, uh, we need someone from within to take this on. And and so I, I did apply and was chosen as the, the clinical crew manager. Uh, I did that for several years um, where I just oversaw the clinical operations of, of the flight program and which moved into the program manager um, and, and then the, um, the, the program administrator where I, I oversaw everything related to, to the program. Um, after that, we started taking on some additional responsibilities, um, as most hospitals do. Uh, it was not just the Life Force program. We took on emergency management. We took on um, the uh, transfer center um, yes. because we had a flight operations center. We took on the transfer center. So Makes sense. a lot of us were pulled in multiple directions, and, and I was kind of tasked to, to stay focused on the flight program. And um, Steve Strawn, one of our um, pilots that became the, the, a leader in our organization, he, he took the path of the transfer center and getting that uh, kind of under control. And, um, and then, you know, we just we kind of took separate paths at that point. 
um, through multiple administration changes at Erlanger, um, all of that eventually wound up reporting, you know, to me. And so um, I actually had the, the Life Force Program, the Transfer Center and Bed Control Center, um, emergency management and business development reported to me for a period of time oh. uh, because the helicopter had such a solid uh, outreach program that our CEO at the time wanted Life Force to take Interesting. that on. Um, oh. So we we had a great team of, of business development folks, and we we married our outreach team with their uh, business development team, and it, it was a great uh, relationship. But like it, everything in healthcare changes, you know. So I served as a as a vice president of operations for about three years, um, and then there was some structure changes. So when they redid everyone's title, I wound up as a, as a senior director uh, with a lot of those same departments. Yeah, I was wondering because you, your titles. They um, it, that makes much more sense now with what you're talking about because you had there's more uh, to it than just the life force program that you're yes. over. Yeah. Um, and, and like anything in healthcare these days, you do you do more with less, you know. And um, yeah. so we, you know, we did have to tighten things up. It's 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 like any hospital in America, you know, the the money just does not go as far as it used to. So you look at other opportunities um, and and other. Uh, places of importance and, and merge them together, you know, and that's yeah. what we wound up doing. So. Yeah. It's um, the transfer center. Um, we did that uh, at Duke too. So I think probably around the same time that you all did that it makes a lot of sense uh, it does. Be- because it does. you can cross train staff. And um, do you have uh, bed control under that too, or is that? We do. So when we first yeah. took on um that operation, it was in two different locations. Um, so we had the flight operations center up on the parking deck where the life force complex was and the bed control and transfer center was honestly in the, the basement of the hospital, you know? Yeah. And really we just did not talk well together. And as we started to change and evolve and, and this was right after our partnership uh, with Medtrans, we, you know, we made a decision to, to make an operations center because there are so many synergies between the transfer center and flight operations. Absolutely. And we just were not uh, maximizing that at all. Um, so we did embark on the, the, the plan to create an operations center, yeah. you know, which is what we have today. And I think having bed control, you know, you know what capacity that you have. Um, Correct. With the transfers. So, so who do you report to uh, at Erlanger then? I currently uh, report to the chief operating officer. To the COO of the, yeah. okay. Um, so let's, let's talk about uh, uh, Erlanger in general. Uh, what types of services and how many locations does Erlanger have? So we have um, seven campuses. Um, we have the main university campus uh, located in downtown Chattanooga, and it is your tertiary quaternary center. And uh, like I said earlier, it does everything from level one trauma to level four NICU um, and everything in between. It's a um, teaching facility. We're um, connected with the University of uh, Tennessee College of Medicine, and primarily our focus is um, resident fellowship education. So we don't do a lot of medical students, but we do a lot of uh, residencies and I think we have 14 different residencies wow. across the system and um, uh, you know probably six or seven on average fellowships um, that we w- that we do as well so we have a big surgery program here uh, for acute care um, so we have about 13 new surgery residents a year there's a cardiovascular um, neuro um, you know pediatrics uh, OB 
oncology, you know, just about most of your big service lines, we have a either a residency or a fellowship in. And, um, and the other campuses across, uh, yep. we have some small campuses in Chattanooga as well. We have a community-based hospital that's about 70 beds. And it, uh, it has an ED and, and, you know, a cath lab and some of your lower acuity patients, you know, um, go to that facility. Then we also have another um, small community-based facility in Chattanooga as well that serves a, a specific um, area of the county. Uh, very small in nature, very niche service, if you will, some outpatient physician practices, things of this nature. And outside of Hamilton County, we have uh, two... Uh, critical access hospitals. One's up in Bledsoe County, which is about an hour and a half from Chattanooga and over in Murphy, uh, Andrews, North Carolina. We have another oh. critical access, access hospital there. Uh, and then we have one freestanding ED over in a very rural community um, of Dunlap, Tennessee. Wow. Yeah. Big, big health system. Um, you had mentioned, um, you know, fellowships, um, uh, Erlanger and the, University of Tennessee College of Medicine formed the EMS fellowship program. I wanted to talk about that. Yeah. So again, it's, it's dating me now, but I think this was about uh, five years ago. Um, Dr. James Creel, which has now uh, unfortunately passed away. He started the first emergency medicine fellowship at Erlanger. And about three years into that, uh, he, he was a big EMS medical director, just had lots of different touch points across the state he's like, look, I want to bring an EMS fellowship here. There's no better sandbox than, than Chattanooga. And, and I'll explain why that is, is we have a ton of different um, access points. You know, obviously Life Force is a big one, you know, for folks uh, doing a fellowship. But we have rural EMS, suburban EMS, um, a big fire system, you know, in, in Chattanooga that does a lot of USAR and confined space and all these different, um, you know, different services related to, EMS. Um, in addition, we have a, uh, you know, just the geography around Chattanooga, we have a big cave and cliff team, high angle rope team, you know, lots of different touch points for a fellow, you know, to get involved in yeah. um, search and rescue, et cetera. So Dr. Creel was very passionate that number one, it'd be an area that folks would want to come for a year and do a fellowship, but then they would get a lot of touch points, you know? Um, so our involvement uh, was really related to the helicopter. Uh, he wanted these folks to be involved uh, with the air medical program. And, and so I was brought on as an assistant professor uh, of that program uh, to, to bring these uh, individuals on. And we, we just um, were introduced to our uh, sixth fellow that will start in July, just this week. And, and it's been a great opportunity uh, for us. And I think for them, our first fellow was Dr. Frank Tift. And the reason I mentioned him is he's still with the program today. And he uh, went through the program, um, completed it, and then decided he wanted to live in Chattanooga, married a local paramedic. And, and now he uh, still flies with us one day a week and is, is one of our assistant medical directors. So wow. that, that's been a great, um, a great thing for EMS to have that physician level support out there. And, and um, for us, the fellow flies with us um, after their first couple months, then they're on a rotation with us where they're flying at least one day a week and very involved in our QA process and uh, administrative meetings and crew credentialing and things of that nature. Yeah, that's great. I think the fellowship programs are very interesting. The, mm -hmm. At LifeLink, we interfaced two of the hospital regions and Hennepin County had uh, fellows that would rotate 
through the yeah. program, got to know them. And I'd always take time to talk about the administrative side mm -hmm. of things and how the program yeah. ran and so, so forth. So uh, let's talk about Life Force. Uh, so when did yeah. the when did the program begin, and uh, what type of aircraft did you first use? So yeah, so the program started in 1988, and um, again, I, I think from my looking back as a in the history of the program, it looked as if Erlanger was going to try to start a ground critical care ambulance service. Is okay, what so their the, intention yeah. was. And then I believe when when you look at um, some of our you know colleagues in the state, University of Tennessee, Vanderbilt, <clears throat> several of the big university-based systems, everyone kind of went into the helicopter business, you know, and that broadens your your outreach and your depth and breadth is is larger. So they embarked on you know doing a helicopter instead. You know, we still only have a, a ground critical care service. Uh, you know, just wind up being the helicopter. So. Um, that was the intent. We started off with uh, with the Bell 412. Um, and I, I believe, you know, we watched other people in the industry. You know, we watched what University of Tennessee did and others. There was a certain mission profile that uh, Dan Norman wanted to achieve. And that was, you know, lots of lift capability, um, infrastructure that would turn into benefiting us later uh, related to IFR. But he um, he knew what he wanted to do right off the bat. So we went into uh, Bell 412s um, in, in 1988. We um, quickly were doing double patient transports. You know, that was right out of the gate, um, oh. the way the aircraft were configured. Uh, we did about 20%, 30% at sometimes double patient transports because there was not the plethora of air ambulances across the state that there are today. Um, so it was not uncommon that we, you know, use that aircraft to max capacity. Um, we were really, there were only three aircraft in the state at the time when we started, and it was us, Vanderbilt, um, and, and University of Tennessee, and then the Memphis, uh, Tennessee program started not long after that, um, and we were all kind of starting within probably five or six years of each other. Then we uh, started looking at where our patients are coming from, um, and then we put the, actually the first satellite base in the state of Tennessee in 1995 up in uh, Sparta, Tennessee, and that's up on the upper Cumberland Plateau area. And they just, they were, you know, two to three hours from anywhere. You know, it was, whether it was Chattanooga, Knoxville or Nashville, they just, you know, it was a long ambulance ride to get them to your big metropolitan areas, tertiary care, you know, trauma centers, et cetera. So the hospital embarked on that uh, adventure in 1995 and, and put another Bell 412 up there. Um, on that uh, Cumberland Plateau. And a lot of those patients came back to, to Chattanooga just because of ease of access. It was easier to drive to Chattanooga than Knoxville or Nash, uh, Nashville. So it, it worked out for us. Yeah. So how many bases do you have currently? We have six currently. Um, uh -huh. So we, we had looked at putting a base, um, this was after I started with the program in Georgia for many years. And that was just a really an underserved area uh, that uh, a lot of patients, um, because we're, where Chattanooga is, we get patients from Nashville or uh, Georgia, Alabama, North Carolina, and Tennessee. Um, so we started a, a, a base down in Calhoun, Georgia in 2005. Um, and that was the third base that was uh, actually an Erlanger base prior to our partnership with Metrans. Uh, after that, we established a, um, a base over in Blue Ridge, Georgia, another very rural underserved uh, community. And then uh, at that point, we, we ran into kind of what I call a, a fork in the road in the program to whereas 
we needed to continue to grow, um, but we needed to place our aircraft differently. So we uh, wound up putting an aircraft in Winchester, Tennessee, which is um, to the west of Chattanooga, uh, going toward Memphis. And, but when we did that, we said, you know, it's time to move the aircraft off the hospital, you know, and put it out in the community. So simultaneously, we opened a base in Winchester, Tennessee, moved our base in, in Chattanooga to Cleveland, Tennessee. Um, and we operated that way for about three years. And then um, Erlanger was in the process of um, acquiring a hospital over in Murphy, North Carolina. And at that time, there was not really um, a lot of air medical coverage over in that Murphy, uh, North Carolina area, so in that kind of western three of the, of the state and very rural in nature. Um, at the at the time, the CEO said, "Look, you know, we want to to help these folks out with their hospital. We also want an aircraft over there. So we 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 did put our sixth aircraft in in Murphy, North Carolina. Uh, I believe in late 2018." Oh, so you have to deal with a lot of different licensure and state requirements. That must be we do. I'm I'm counting three <laughs> yeah. states. Is that right? Yes, it, it is. And um, luckily, we we have our quality assurance person is also our standards person. So he has a big responsibility making sure that we meet uh, not only credit came to accreditation, but all the state standards. Yeah. So we are licensed in, in, in Tennessee, obviously, but Georgia, North Carolina, and, and soon to be Alabama. Wow. Um, so it is wow. a, it is a huge undertaking. Uh, yeah. To, it does. Is that, is that difficult with your, um, clinical staff that you have to keep up their licensure in all the states if they move from base to base? They do. Um, yeah, wow. it, you know, and that, that's the unfortunate thing about this. You know, the nursing compact has helped a little bit with this. Um, the paramedic side of the house we struggle with because the, the replica really did not accomplish what we wanted it to accomplish. Yeah. So the paramedics do have to be licensed in, in all, all of the states that some of the nurses do. And then some of them, if they're compact, it does carry over, but it is a constant um, upkeep with that because, you know, the scope of practice is different in the three different states. And so we have to adjust and, you know, the, the scope of practice in the state of Georgia is different than the state of Tennessee. And, you, you know, it, it's just a constant um, upkeep for that. Yeah. I, I know with LifeLink, it was complicated enough dealing with a couple states, let alone yes, uh, yes. four states. My it, it certainly is a, uh, is a full-time job. That's, yeah. that, there's no doubt about that. So um, I know for the first 20 years you had your own part 135 certificate. Did, did the program start with a part 135 certificate? We did. Wow. Um, you know, it started, it started that way, which, you know, uh, that many years ago, it was a little easier to do. The FAA was a, was um I won't say easier to work with, but there wasn't very many helicopter programs at that time. And, and so it was kind of chartering a, a new, uh, a new chapter for them. So that is the way it started uh, with us. So we had the traditional, you know, director of operations, director of maintenance, chief flight nurse, chief flight paramedic, you know, those, you know, kind of uh, original structures of how things were. And we did that, um, you know, like you said, about 21 years. And honestly, it's like many hospitals across America, you know, the, the money just did not go as far as it used to. We were needing to grow and expand and um, we we're fighting for capital dollars within a, a big health system. And it really just came to a point that, you know, our uh, aging Bell 412s, while they were workhorses and they were 
fun to fly in, uh, very expensive to maintain and yes. it needed to be replaced. And, um, from, a you know, direct operating costs was just getting very, very challenging for a hospital. Um, so, so we did operate our own certificate for that long and then got to a point in the hospitals, um, you know, point, if you will, financially that we just had to do something different. So we, uh, it started in 2000, probably started in 2007, um, early 2007, we started looking at other models. Um, we watched the University of Tennessee, we watched some other big academic hospitals go into a different type of model with either, you know, a traditional vendor type model with an operator or, you know, this alternative delivery hybrid right. type model. And um, watch, I honestly watched the University of Tennessee in Knoxville very closely for a couple of years as they did the same thing prior to us and, and wind up, you know, settling on a, um, and that's not net intended negatively, we wind up settling on a, um, a hybrid type model uh, with Metrians in 2008. Yeah. And so what does um, the hybrid model, what does that mean? What, because they all vary a little bit. They do. Um, and they what, do. for for LifeForce, what does that mean? What services are MedTrans doing and what, what is the hospital doing? Well, great question. You know, it was it was important even for our board and they, and they, ha they had a lot to do with the transition to a new model because they, they did not want the service that had been around for so long to really change that much. Um, really just changing from an aviation perspective. So it was important for us to maintain that uh, medical medical direction, you know, our physicians, yep. uh, program leadership, um, the clinical crews. We, we did not want to give up our communication center. Um, so we wanted all of those core pieces, business development, everything we wanted to stay with the hospital because that's really where the brand was, you know, and that's what everyone knew. Um, so what we looked for was, um, you know, someone that could operate the aircraft, provide new equipment um, related to aviation, new aircraft, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, uh, provide the mechanics and the pilots and um, they do help us with business development. Um, so that, that kind of fit with us, you know, they acquired our aviation, aviation assets. Um, and then we, we've expanded since then. So uh, everything outside of the aviation box, the, the pilots and, and the mechanics and the airframe, is is owned and operated by by Erlanger. Yeah, it's so um, the pilots you had then they became um, employees of Medtrans. They did, um, yeah. and, and it was kind of interesting because you know you weren't real sure what to expect. To be honest with you, um, any any type of contractual um, process that you go through, you, you you expect one thing, and that may not be what you get at the end of the day. But we were very fortunate from the standpoint that we had 100% of our pilots transition over, you know, to Medtrans, and there was, you know, they assumed their legacy benefits and their legacy pay, and and kept, you know, kept everyone. Um, so we, even though we expected maybe some turnover, uh, we we didn't see that, you know, for probably the first year, everybody stayed exactly where they were, you know, and. And we flew the Bell 412s for probably another year and maybe a half um, after the transition while we um, had new aircraft in the pipeline, et cetera. Um, so they, they stayed where they were um, for at least a year, which was very good to see. You know, yes. um, we, did, we didn't have a lot of, um, you know, our experienced people leave us. They stayed with us for a while. And um, 
still helicopters all Erlang or just now you had to, to add the operated by yeah, operated by right yeah, yeah we um you know the life force name you know that's interesting from a history perspective uh, back in 1988 they did a um, hospital naming contest uh to come up with the name of the helicopter and oh, actually huh. one of our environmental services um you know employees came up with the name and and that was the one that was picked and and so we trademarked that in, in 1988 and, and has been trademarked since then. And that's, you know, we'll always, well, right now it'll always stay part of Erlanger. Um, so regardless of uh, future relationships, the hospital maintains that name and the brand. Yeah. So um, uh, back to the, the partnership, are uh, some, some programs add, you know, have billing services done by the, um, you know, air operators or, or the mm-hmm. uh, partner only because the hospital doesn't always, you know, do a great job or they, you know, it gets mixed right. in with all the other yeah. billing. Yeah. Did you add that or did, did billing stay with? Uh, we, we, we did add that. And, and to your point, um, you know, air medicine is, is pretty much a part B service for the most yes. part. Yeah. Um, and, and we, you know, from an Erlanger perspective, that just was not their wheelhouse. Um, right. And so we did uh, outsource the billing component we were very, um, um, just if I say, restrictive on, on billing practices and have maintained that uh, to this point. And, and honestly, uh, since 2008, you know, it's worked well. I mean, there's always little bumps in the road, even with, you know, as, as contentious as the billing across the country is at this point. And I think yeah. that's one of the biggest issues facing our industry. Yes. Um, is, you know, we haven't had those big issues. And I think it's the way we, uh, structured our agreement from the very beginning. That that's good. That was took some foresight because I know there's yeah. other programs that are gone into an ADM that mm-hmm. have gotten into issues yes. where there's yeah. you know huge balance billing uh, uh, bills that people get. Um, it and seems I think, like I'm, I'm sorry. I think that's one of the biggest things that's dividing our industry right now is is you know if you get past this balance billing piece and surprise billing legislation. So there's not a lot that separates, you know, the industry at that yes. point. I, that's just my personal opinion. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That's on that. what I, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's still there's a lot of devil in the details with yes. with everything, but I think it was a a good move because there's no reason to be putting patients, you know, they're dealing with enough, then all of a sudden to have some, uh, you know, humongous bill that they have right. to to deal with and. Uh, but you know the insurance companies have to come to the table on this too. Oh, absolutely, and, absolutely. And and, and Erlanger's, you know, is a um, government hospital authority. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a governmental not for profit, and and so that really puts us in a unique situation from that um, because that's historically not what our type of hospital agrees with. You know, so it, it's been a it's been a balancing act. Yeah. Um, I had read something too on the the regional operations center. Was that developed with MedTrans? Too? We did develop that in partnership. Um, yeah, so we, talk about that. Yeah, so and, and I think that's a great testament of what people can do together. Um, I believe everybody at that time, and this was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in 2014 is when we did this. We did. Um, you know, our flight operations was up on the uh, helipad and our transfer center was in the bowels of the hospital. And, you know, we came together and said, you know, what, what are we missing here? And, um, 
and we sat down and said, look, you know, if we could connect our transfer center and bed control with the flight ops uh, team, you know, we're, we're just really going to be communicating well. We're going to cross information. We're going to get helicopters dispatched to facilities quicker. We're going to capture more patients back to the system. And so at that point, um, we, we came together and said, let's, let's do this. Let's, it'll be uh, really one of the first ones for Medtrans. We model a lot of other programs that had done this across the country. Uh, we spent some time up with Carilion Clinic, Paul Davenport and his team up there were great hosts to us. Yeah. Um, and, and we kind of used them and Mayo Clinic and Thomas Jefferson to kind of uh, model what we wanted to do. And then we just, we came together and did it. You know, the hospital was very supportive, Medtrans was supportive and, and uh, the biggest challenge we had was finding the space to do it, you know, uh, at the hospital because real estate's a, a premium anywhere these days in a hospital. Yeah, so that's, it, it, that sorry. seems pretty unique, um, you know, working with MedTrans on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, they, they certainly let us take the lead. Um, they just, you know, they, um, they said, look, we feel like there's benefit, you know, to everyone involved here. Um, and it was, a, it was a critical point in Erlanger's history to where, um, we may not have been the facility of choice for everybody, you know, and, and so we were trying to change a lot of the image related to the hospital. We're trying to create that easy button for these outlying small facilities to send their yeah. patients. And, and so we moved into a just say yes culture um, where we accepted any and all, um, you know, obviously we're adjusting from that now, uh, but uh, you know, our, our job was to make the other people's job easy. And, and that's what we needed to do. So, uh, we embarked on the change and our flight operations, they've been strong for many, many years and it really needed no tweaking, but we wanted to model our transfer center and our bed control folks after what we had done with flight operations. And so we, um, you know, it was a hodgepodge of staff in our transfer center. It was clerical staff, LPNs, RNs. And so we embarked on this critical care mo- uh, nursing model. Um, so all of our um, staff that uh, either staff the transfer center side or the bed control side are all critical care uh, RNs. And the yeah. reason we did that was Excellent. we don't, we don't do a lot of physician connection anymore. It's, it's auto acceptance. Um, so if it meets the criteria, they automatically accept on behalf of the physician. And so there, it cuts down the time and honestly gets people back to their patients at these outlying hospitals, but makes our process easier. Oh, that's, that's, uh, sounds great. Had, had you looked at other partners at the time? with uh, when you chose MedTrans and we did, we did an ex- very extensive RFP uh, yeah. at that time. And we, we looked at everyone and I honestly looked at every model because um, we were not convinced that we didn't want to do the traditional and just, you know, choose an operator to help us on and then wind up settling, you know, uh, where we are. Um, and it and actually has been good. It's not to say there's never bumps in their road because I think there is with any relationship. Um, but overall, I would, uh, you know, I would say it's been a very positive thing for us since since 2008. Yeah, sounds like a, it's been a, a very successful partnership. For it you. has. It yeah. has. So um, talk about your quality assurance and uh, management program uh, that you have uh, at LifeForce. That's one thing that I, I'm extremely, you know, proud of um, that you know, honestly, again, had a good foundation from the very beginning. We've had great um, interaction and support. It's a multidisciplinary team. Uh, We meet once a month and uh, review charts, um, everything from pediatrics through, you know, adult patients. And um, we use a lot of the gamut uh, metrics now. Uh, We submit to gamut. So uh, we, like most services, I think we're, we just did 
did the normal stuff for so many years and we just weren't really pushing the envelope. And, and really over the past four years, we've really pushed the envelope on all the different metrics that we're looking at. Um, in, in those meetings, again, we look at um, certain procedures that fall out. Of course, those are reviewed. We review every pediatric transport that we do uh, with our pediatric medical directors. Um, if there's a, you know, an extended scene time and there's uh, something abnormal based on uh, delivery of the patient, you know, if, if it gets flagged by trauma or neuroscience or something for air medical review, then we'll look at all those flights as well to see how we could have done things differently, better or, or improved. Um, good physician involvement. I think that's key to any uh, quality assurance program. We've got great medical directors. I can't emphasize that enough. We're very fortunate from that perspective. And they're very engaged in what we do um, and, and provide education. Being part of the University of Tennessee College of Medicine, we, we have access to a lot of subspecialty you know, physicians, which we take huge advantage of, um, from skills labs to simulation centers to all those different things that we can you know, remediate teams or, or bring on new technologies or therapies. It just allows us to do that much easier. That's great. It, actually, talk about your medical director and how that works. And, and um, um, do you have other physicians that sit on a clinical council type thing, or you just um, access those specialists when you need them? Yeah, great question. Um, we've been very fortunate at Life Force, uh, thank goodness, we, we're, we've only had three medical directors in 33 years. So um, we started off with a, a surgeon, Dr. Riddenberry. He, he was the medical director for about a year when the program first started. Um, and they recruited Dr. Don Parker, uh, which at the time was the University of Kentucky had started their flight program up there, or was oh. a big part of starting the program there. And Dr. Barker was with us uh, for, for almost 29 years um, as the medical director. And he retired, you know, uh, about two years ago now um, and, and got out of, uh, you know, clinical practice. He was a trauma you know, acute care surgeon, very involved in EMS, was on the EMS board for many years and, and just a great, um, you know, leader in, in, in addition to being a physician. Uh, when Dr. Barker stepped down, we brought on uh, Dr. Bob Maxwell, which is another acute care trauma surgeon, and uh, he's he's leading you know our our team at this point. But in addition to Dr. to to Dr. Maxwell, we've got Dr. Tiff, which was our original fellow. He has that emergency medicine side. Yes. Um, so he's boarded in emergency medicine. He's boarded in EMS. So and and also flies with us one day a week. Um, so he's there. And then we recently brought on Dr. Yuv Kalra, which is a pediatric intensivist. And he is, um, he is on uh, board with us now about six months as an associate medical director for pediatrics. So that brings in the children's hospital component. So we're very fortunate to have those three gentlemen um, that are heavily and regularly involved in the program. But to your point, in addition to that, we do have a physician advisory council. Um, which yeah. it brings on all the subspecialty uh, physicians. So we've got great involvement um, from, you know, Dr. We call her Dr. Sunny, but Dr. Sunanunda is a high risk OB uh, perinatologist. So she um, works with us from a high risk OB perspective. We have a neonatologist. Um, we've got a representation from our cardiovascular cardiothoracic team our neurosciences team, and, and we meet once a quarter with that group of uh, folks to just assure that we're meeting everyone's needs. Is there new therapies, new medications, new processes that we need to put in place? And any of the, any time that we have a 
specific incident where, you know, we may have, you know, cardiovascular transport that didn't go appropriately. We can always reach out to those folks and, and, and get insight. Does that group um, help develop and approve the protocols then? In each of they those do. Areas? You know, yeah. um, I would say Dr. Tiff does a lot of the heavy lifting uh, on, on establishment of those. And, and to our point earlier, they're all different based on the state. Unfortunately, we can have a general set that right. have to be adjusted by the state. But then he sends out like the cardiovascular stuff to our cardiovascular physician, OB to our OB, and they go through those and just make sure that everything is, is buttoned up, you know, eyes are dotted, T's are crossed, and, and any adjustments that need to be made, they certainly play a part in that. Yeah, yeah. Well, so let's talk about your clinical crew. What is the crew configuration? And um, do you have specialty crew members that you bring on, like for neonate, or how does that work? Yeah, so we, um, our, our normal crew configuration, obviously pilot, but then we have um, a flight nurse and a flight paramedic. And that, that has been the, the team composition since the inception of the program. We did, you know, from a standards perspective, we require all of our nurses and paramedics to have a board certification. So all of our nurses within a year have to be a CFR and all of our paramedics within a year have to be FPC. And, uh, and we, we require a ton of required annual education. Um, so these folks... Uh, they can't be slackers and work here. You know, it, it, they have to stay um, very proficient and, and sharpen their skills uh, or, or unfortunately they can't be part of this team. So we hold a lot of uh, folks to high, you know, high standards and, and just our normal team composition. And we do, we do everything with this team uh, with exception of neonatal transports. Uh, when we do neonatal transports, we do bring a specialty team with us. One of the original flight crew uh, members will go with them. Uh, kind of as a safety officer and another uh, set yeah. of hands. And they do provide some clinical care as well, but we'll bring either a neonatal nurse practitioner uh, and a respiratory therapist, or sometimes a nurse and a respiratory therapist. Now, do they, uh, do they participate in the training too? Um, they do. They do. Yeah. You know, from a clinical perspective, um, you know, they do most of their training there. Uh, we do train with them regularly related to the aircraft. Yes. Um, right. Safety, safety stuff. Yeah. Um, they do a lot of our annual credentialing, though, night vision goggles, you know, stuff like that um, that's required by the certificate. But then we do it all at a lot of team training too, how to work together. And, and I think it brings a, a huge appreciation of skill sets, you know, um, because the neonatal population is just, it's just really different. And, um, you know, it's one of these, if you don't do it all the time, it, it's hard to maintain that skills proficiency. So I think there's a large respect for them toward us as well as us toward them you know, and what they do and it, it works well. And then um, does the neonatal team, would they get on any one of the helicopters or is it just a couple bases that are doing that? Well, we do any and all of the um, EC-135s are subject to be pulled for neonatal transport. I would say the majority of the time we're either using our Cle a Cleveland, Tennessee base because it's only about 11 minutes from the hospital it's close, yeah. Um, or Winchester, which is about 16 minutes, you know, from the hospital, give or take. Those are the two that do the majority of those transports. But again, if we have a, you know, our, our EC-135 from Murphy that's on the helipad when a NICU transport um, is dispatched, then they're, they're subject to go as well. Right. And the neonatal, I think that what their standard is, what, 30 minute liftoff? 30 minutes. Yeah. And, and really, you know, we try to do better than that. Um, you know, sometimes the, um, the weak link there for us is getting the team up there. 
you know, uh, getting them away from the bedside, getting yep. them here. Usually by the time they get to the helipad, the helicopter's there um, and ready to go. So, but our goal is 30 minutes or less. Yeah. yeah. What, um, on uh, the programs is CAMES accredited, right? How long have you mm-hmm. been CAMES? And, um... You know, we, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we became accredited in 2008, um, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere right around there and have maintained. We've been through three reaccreditations since then. Um, if I, I think that's right, three or four. <laughs> it, it all becomes a blur uh, right. after, after that point. But we, it comes uh, around much quicker than you. It realize. sure does. It <laughs> yeah. sure does. And, and we did that for a multitude of different reasons. Number one is it's really taking a deep dive at ourself, deep dive look at ourself uh, to see, you know, you always think you're better than you are. And that, that's my opinion. And I, I think folks like that allow you to pull back the onion just a little bit, see what, you know, where you could potentially improve. I feel like it did clean up a lot of our policy processes, redundancies in policy, um, and really held us accountable to our quality assurance processes. Yeah. Talk about your safety program too. What, how, how does that operate? Again, you know, very fortunate uh, from, from that regard. Uh, and, and to give an acknowledgement, uh, our safety chairman, uh, Robert Berger, is one of our flight paramedics up in Sparta. He won the Ames uh, Safety Award this, the same year that I won the Leadership oh, yeah. Award. Yeah. And, and Robert, you know, he, he's a paramedic. He's also a private pilot by trade, but he's chair of safety committee uh, for about nine years now. And it's a multidisciplinary uh, committee that involves not only the clinical staff, but aviation maintenance, um, you know, uh, med transit safety department and their um, safety management system. It all integrates together, but he, but he, he chairs that and, and runs a very tight ship. Uh, they look at everything from recent and relevant industry events and how we can learn from that. Yes. Um, we review anything that's happened within the program. Uh, and we have great participation. Every base um, has a site safety officer that may be a pilot, nurse, or paramedic. It just depends on who it is. Um, in addition to maintenance representation, aviation representation, and again, you know, Med- Medtrans' overall safety, um, either direct or regional person uh, is always there. Yeah. How um, often does the safety committee meet? We meet once a month, yeah. um, and and right now, and uh, it's virtual, uh, like many things yeah. are. Um, but you know, again, we cover a host of different things. Uh, Medtrans uses the Baldwin system for reporting, sure. um, so everybody has access from the communication center through the pilot has access uh, to that system. We all have visualization on it and can respond and adjust and you know acknowledge uh, whether it's notums or an incident that did happen. Um, we all have eyes on it um, and it, it works very well. It, 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 uh, a lot of folks um, use pilots, you know, and, and, and they would be your, really your, your, your most um, obvious choice, you know, from a safety committee perspective. Um, but Robert has just done a phenomenal job and again was recognized this year for, for his safety efforts with the team and couldn't be prouder of him. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, because safety is really much more all-encompassing. Um, and I think it has grown from just looking at it from an aviation perspective. Um, had, did, was Medtrans able to add more to, um, you know, the look at, at safety than when you just had it as a, a program level? I think it has evolved. You know, yeah. I, th- I think we, we did things extremely safe back then. Um, I think... However, when you're only looking at yourself and no one else has eyes on you, 
I can see where you could be a little more complacent than other times. I think, you know, uh, being multidisciplinary now with, with folks that see other programs in the industry, um, they may pick up on things that we're missing, you know? So I think it's been a, a good system for us just to hear what other folks are doing in the industry, what other bases, uh, incidents that do happen. You know, you have a failure with stretcher in one market that transitions over to us to, for us to look at the same thing and maybe not, not have that same mistake happen in our program. So I think it has been very beneficial for us. You know, I know in the programs I've been at, we've always reviewed the concern network stuff, but not as many people are really posting to that anymore. It's harder to get it information. Is. It, it is. Uh, now, you know, Robert, he um, and others even go further than that. They're looking at the FAA stuff. They're looking yes. at the NTSB Yep. Um, things that come out, you know, um, you know, unfortunately, our industry's had some some bad, you know, outcomes, and when that unfortunately does happen, you know, we've we've taken each one of those and looked at it, and and to see how we may could you know, do better or be more aware of, of things that happened and and how we can improve from that. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, I was real interested. Um, you had. Uh, uh, critical care uh, rapid response vehicle. And I know other programs mm -hmm. that have looked at that. Talk, talk about that and how that started. Well, honestly, it started probably, um, probably eight or nine years ago. And I can tell you why it started. You know, it was an interesting thing. You know, our aircraft can't fly in all conditions, as we all know. You know, there are certain weather things, uh, lightning, ice. Uh, you know, the Tennessee Valley is you know, you, you can't do a lot of IFR, you know, in, in the wintertime, we do a lot, but, you know, as the cloud layer lowers, you know, got yeah. icing conditions. So we had several uh, situations happen where we had just critical patients out in the region and, and just had no way to get to them. You know, um, the local ambulance services obviously play a huge role, but, uh, and some of them even have started doing critical care ground transport, but there just was, it was missing that critical care component. Um, of bringing the equipment and the blood and the plasma and all the stuff that we bring on board the aircraft, a lot of these services were missing that. So we looked at it and said, well, how can we accomplish this without, number one, getting in the ambulance business? That's, that's not always popular. You know, folks think you're trying to steal their business or right. how can we do this that's not polarizing or competitive or things of this nature. So we, we embarked on the, the SUV concept, almost like a paramedic intercept service that other parts of the country does. Um, I, I did have the fortune of leading that charge. I went to our hospital auxiliary, which is our volunteers, and said, look, here's what I, I would like to do, and here's why. You know, and I gave them several examples of we had a, a hemorrhaging female um, postpartum that needed blood products, and we had a kid over, you know, uh, over in North Carolina that needed critical care and, and presented them with multiple issues that we had and, and they're like, go do it, go do it now. You know, so um, luckily they uh, provided us a grant. At that point we had um, four bases and we went and bought four SUVs and um, they were wrapped up to look like the helicopter. And, and the purpose of that was when we're down for heavy maintenance or we're down for weather or we're down for whatever reason and can't fly, that team is still available to respond. Um, so they'll go to an inner facility, transport, um, you know, help EMS move, move the patient, provide that critical care level of service. Uh, they'll go out and meet with EMS if they got a big entrapment or something. 
um, and then needing some specialized services, we can respond out and do that. Um, we had an incident, you know, just two weeks ago, where we had two very sick children uh, in North Georgia at a small hospital, and we deployed two bases, critical care vehicles down there for those two patients, um, just because, you know, they were strapped on resources and they just didn't have enough people to take care of them. Um, it's been a great um, service. We don't, we don't bill for it. Um, there's I was really just going to ask you that. Yeah. Uh, it's, there's not a mechanism to do that. Yeah. Um, but it, it's just the right thing to do. Um, so so we, does that does that crew then get on the ambulance? They do. Then, yeah. Yeah. Whoever the local service is, um, we work with them. You know, they'll do a risk assessment when they get there with the crew. And, you know, if it's in the middle of the night, they'll talk about, you know, how long have you been up and, you know, safety of the vehicle and things of this nature. And, and then they'll, um, they'll do the transport with that EMS crew uh, back to the hospital. Yeah. I think one of the hard things too, I mean, he's, you mentioned billing and I was going to ask you about that and that's difficult. Uh, but the other thing is, you know, whether sometimes it, you know, it, it changes and then you get involved with these and you have to do what's right for the patient, obviously, but you could be out of service at that base for hours and hours where you could have gotten back in service. So, yeah. And, um, and honestly, that's a, that's a balancing act. And we yes. do, we do it all the time. Um, yeah. what, what we do to, to try to mitigate some of that is, you know, if, if it is a passing weather system, then we'll have the pilot and aircraft meet the crew at the hospital and pick them yep. up. We do yep. that as much as we can. Yep. Um, sometimes we can't, you know, and they'll go back to their service area background and, and then get back in service eventually. But we try to, it's a, it's a constant moving uh, target uh, for us on that, unfortunately. But again, I look at it if, if it were my child, you know, in, in one of these outlying uh, emergency departments with limited services, I would certainly want to do that. Yep. I've got a few more questions. One I always like to ask, because uh, I think, as you know, from MTLI, and I know you're an MTLI grad, and uh, is strategic planning. So how, how does Life Force do their strategic planning? And is that part of the general hospital strategic plan? Or do you have a separate plan for the program? Uh, we, have, we have both, honestly. Yeah. We do um, part of the system as, as a department of the hospital. We do our plan that um, focuses on you know, our impact to the health system. You know, uh, one of the statistical uh, numbers reported to the board every month is helicopter transports. They like to see how we're doing, you know, and, and what patients we're bringing and visiting aircraft and things of this nature. So it does play a big, a big role uh, for the hospital in general. We look at how we can impact um, the hospital from a market share perspective, patient flow perspective, um, you know, that, those downstream benefits, if you will, you know, to having the helicopter program. Um, we work very closely with business development. So when we look at, you know, market share and branding, you know, the helicopter program plays a big part in that. And when we go into the region, um, and so it does play a big part of their strategic planning. Internally, uh, we do the same thing just as a, a microscopic view of the flight program. You know, what we're doing, what we want to accomplish, um, is there potential growth? Is there, you know, we've never relocated a base, but we always look at it to make sure we're still doing the right thing um, for, for the communities that we serve. And is, is there opportunities out there for us? Um, we, we do submit for capital. You know, everything has to be tied into to the strategic plan within the health system. So if we're needing you know, new monitors, new ventilators, ultrasounds, whatever, we have to, you know, be part of that strategic sure. process, you know, to potentially get that funding needed. Um, but we do that annually, um, and it, it's a multidisciplinary, um, you know, not just Erlanger. We do involve Medtrans with that. 
uh, we're part of their strategic process, you know, as they're going into year after year and where do we fit into that? So uh, multiple levels there. That's great. Uh, that's, um, that's the way to do it. Um, it is because, uh, you have to, and it has to be become part of your normal operations too. I've known programs yeah. that, uh, well, it was actually a hospital, you know, you get a strategic plan and you put it up on the shelf and no one's allowed to see it. And so, well, yeah. you know, <laughs> how are we supposed to implement that? You know, so, that's right. Um, so, you know, we, we touched on COVID and all the work that you've done. How did, specifically did it impact the program, you know, initially and then ongoing? Yeah. So, you know, it was like everything else. It, it just it kind of really came to a stop, you know, for for really about 30 days there when when folks just started staying home, they weren't going to the hospital, people weren't on the roads, um, you know, your domestic level stuff really just all dried up for the lack of a better word. And, and for about 30 days, we, we just didn't fly a lot of patients. And yeah. I think that's where a lot of folks, you know, po- folks were not coming to the emergency rooms. Um, so everybody's volume just kind of tanked off uh, with the unknown. And that's really prior to all the infection starting. So we were kind of figuring out what, what do we need to do here? Um, and I, I think even our team and I uh, talked multiple days in a row, like, okay, what do we need to adjust? Do we need to, you know, uh, do we need to close the base, you know, for a period, you know, what do we need to do with staffing, all these different things. And um, so, yeah, it impacted us for about 30 days there where we basically didn't fly a lot of patients. I mean, very few at all. Uh, we made the decision early on to, to stay the course. We didn't, we did not shut down any bases or reduce staffing or any of those things just because of the unknown, we just didn't, we didn't know. And so we all just kind of wrote out the, wrote out the unknown, if you will, uh, until we kind of started to see things peak and, and get back to normal. So about Is that, that in 40, like the March, April time period. Yes. So yeah. about 45 days into it, it really started to pick back up and folks started moving again and you started seeing the infections and, you know, and that just started to spike, you know, uh, uncontrollably. Uh, and we had to adjust, uh, you know, not knowing, um, you know, levels of protection. We, you know, we started off in the N95s and the goggles and trying to protect everybody with shields. And uh, then we wind up shifting over to the um, very similar to LifeLink to the aviation respirated right. fit system, you know, in there so the crews could could still do their job, but be protected, you know. So we had to make some huge investments in that uh, to protect the staff. Certain subsets of patients we couldn't fly initially. You know your your CPAP and your BiPAP and, and those folks that were off gassing, aerosolizing stuff. We couldn't fly those patients because that we couldn't protect our staff and pilots. Yeah. And you know, so it, it was a it was a huge you know change for us um, that I think we like everyone else in the country just had to to adjust daily almost um, to doing it. Uh, we had. Um, like other areas, you know, while we put in very strict um, processes related to social distancing, masking, all these things, we, we did wind up with infections within the flight program, you know, um, some on the job, some off the job in the community. And it, it did impact us there for about six weeks where, uh, while we didn't, you know, knock on what have shut a base down, we did have to adjust staffing and bring people in, um, you know, to make sure the bases were covered. Uh, it, it was a it was a stressful time. We unfortunately, um, I'm sure you saw, we we did lose a pilot uh, during that process. Stu Base, which was one of our pilots over in our Blue Ridge area for many years, uh, contracted COVID yes. you know, on the yeah. job and and unfortunately succumbed to his his process. But um, you know, it, it we just walked through it day by day. You know, honestly, it was 
uh, it was a big blow to the program. Um, but it also made, I think, everyone realize this, this is serious. This is a very serious business and we need to pay attention even though you want, you want to relax and you want to become even more complacent just because you're tired of it, the whole fatigue factor. Um, this, this is serious stuff and it, it doesn't have a specific body type or, or age or um, underlying disease process. It, it just really, it's like Russian roulette. It's either your turn or it's not your turn, you know? Well, it takes, you know, as I've always said, you know, universal precautions. We're always supposed to do that, but this takes it to a much higher level, yeah, you know, that it, people it, have it to does. be cognizant about. And um, have, have your transports picked up with that you're actually transporting COVID patients that need ICU care from outlying yes. facilities? So we, yeah. um, we still do um, several a week, four or five, six a week that are, yep. that are COVID positive needing that uh, tertiary quaternary care, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it's one of the things we we just started implementing the hood concept, you know, for yes. BiPAP and CPAP, like some of the other air medical programs in the country. So we can fly those um, patients that are not necessarily intubated yet. Uh, we can fly those patients. So, yeah, we're still seeing um, four or five a week that we have to, you know, fly the patient. Then we have to decontaminate the aircraft and, and uh, those things. So it, it's certainly still there. It's not gone. Um, you know, we went from 140 in the hospital down to we're averaging about 20, 22 in the hospital uh, right now. It does ebb and flow a little bit, but yeah. um, we've certainly not seen the amount of virus that we, we were. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, different areas. I mean, Canada's getting hit really hard yeah. up in the Ontario area. Um, Michigan is just, I mean, you know, it's like in the early days when New York was hit and they didn't have ICU beds yeah. and needing all kinds of care. How's, how's um, the vaccination program down there work? I you mean, know, we, getting... uh, with emergency management, we, we uh, we're a big part of leading that effort for the initial vaccines. Um, and, and we, we have a uh, employee population of probably about 8,000, um, eight to 9,000, give or take. Um, some of those are subcontractors, but we uh, led that campaign and probably vaccinated about 75% voluntarily. Um, when we did roll out the vaccine and that went very well. We learned a lot <laughs> pretty early about how to do that in masses. And we, we constantly had to adjust our strategy a little bit day by day to get everyone in. Um, but you know, what was so interesting about that, I tell people still to this day is when we started doing vaccine, it's like, it didn't matter who you were. You, you could be the CEO, you could be a physician, you could be an environmental services worker. You all stood in line together you all rolled up your sleeve and you got, you know, there was no picking, uh, pecking order, if you will, uh, for who got it first. And, and we did that purposefully. We have not mandated the vaccine here yet, but just simply because it's still on emergency, you know, authorization. Um, I think we'll get there eventually like we do with influenza. Um, but right now we've, we've not chosen, you know, to do that. Do, uh, do you we, require flu shots? We do. Re you, we do yeah. require flu. Yeah. yeah. I think we'll, we'll get there eventually. Um, we just chose not to do that yet. Yeah. 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 Well, um, I, uh, always like to finish up. I, you seem very, very busy. I I'm just uh, amazed at all the things that you do. So, uh, yeah. I, I know you have a personal life too. You want to talk about your family and yeah, children absolutely. And, uh, Anytime. Yeah. So, um, I'm married to my wonderful wife, Rachel, um, almost 15 years now, Rachel's uh, in the aviation industry, aviation safety, and oh. has an EMS background as well. Uh, do, does a lot of the IFR 
infrastructure stuff across the country. Um, Interesting. So been uh, uh, very fortunate to 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 be. Did you guys uh, meet her. through work? Did you meet through? We did. Work? We met yeah. through the Life Force program. Her mom yeah. um, has been a physician in Chattanooga for over forty years, and wow. so she was introduced as a as a young girl to the flight program. And then we met many years later after she went to college and came back. And um, so we we did meet there. Oh, great story. Um, yeah. We've got two. Uh, Two boys, a nine-year-old and a, and a five-year-old, both uh, athletic and full of energy, and keep us uh, keep us on our toes. So yeah. we are uh, very fortunate and blessed from that regard. It sounds like they'll be supercharged with the two of you and the energy level that you guys. Have. <laughs> yeah, they uh, they they keep us on our toes. That's uh, both are in sports and athletics, and and it's uh, it's a constant in our house. So what, do you have other activities that you like to do, you know, outside? Yeah. So we, uh, you know, the, the family has a cabin, uh, not too far from here. Oh, nice. We spend a lot of time at, and, uh, we, we have a boat, love to be on the water uh, as much as we can during the summertime. And, um, we love being out uh, doing that big, big snow skiers. So we try to, we try to have not been able to this last couple of years, but, uh, try to go, uh, snow skiing at least once a year, uh, cause we don't get a lot of snow in Tennessee. So, yeah, I was going to say, where do you, where do you go skiing usually? Uh, we try to go out west, but yeah. most of the time, whether uh, you know Colorado, um, you know, we went on the East Coast some, you know, but we try to visit around Colorado. One of our big things is is to go to Utah. We want to do that in the next, hopefully this year. You know, oh, nice, yeah, experience things like that. Is is there any skiing in Tennessee? No, anywhere no. in the mountains. Uh, yeah. We're very. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there there is a little town in the uh, Smoky Mountains called Gatlinburg. And sure. it's, it's a very touristy, um, and there's a little ski hill there, um, literally with one lift and it's, it's like skiing on ice, but, uh, you can, <laughs> you can go up there and, uh, and, and take that on if you'd like to. <laughs> yeah. I, I know, uh, when I was up in Virginia, uh, you know, Virginia has some skiing yeah, and then West Virginia, of course, but, yep. uh, yeah, a little bit different than, uh, um, up here. And of course we have skiing up in, Minnesota, Wisconsin, but it tends to, this is more a hotbed for uh, cross country skiing because it's a little flatter. You don't have the big mountains. Yeah. So, well, uh, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to talk about uh, before we close up? You know, there? the only thing I, I think I failed to mention, you know, and again, this was prior to me in, in 1994 with the program, you know, Erlanger was the, uh, the world's first a GPS approach into a, a yes, hospital. yes, and uh, I meant to mention that earlier and just uh, yeah, my mind. And Dan Norman and, and his team at the time, um, got worked with the FAA, started the process for helicopters. You know, there were helicopters doing IFR, but there was none doing really precision approaches right. into a fixed facility. So the Erlanger helipad, which you know we still use today, um, it, it was the world's first in, in doing a GPS into a fixed facility. and uh, we've got about 21 of those um, across our service area uh, that we still use, you know, regularly. That's uh, amazing. That's, that, that was a big, big milestone uh, for yeah. the program. Yeah, that's, uh, I would had the opportunity to put five of those in mm -hmm. uh, when I was up at, at Duke, but it's, uh, it's amazing. I know um, uh, Mayo has done a lot with yes. uh, approaches too. And that is real important because it's, it's nice, but if it's, strictly IFR, then you're really just landing at the airport. Then you have to add in the, the ground right. transport when you can do the GPS approach. So, and we still um, do a, a, a lot of it. I mean, it's uh, it varies, you know, with 
you know, the, now the aircraft from a fuel perspective and alternate perspective, there's still some complexities out there that, sure. um, you know, doesn't allow us to do it all the time, but it still provides us access to certain communities and getting those patients back into the hospital versus the airport, I think is huge. It gives, it gives the pilots another op, um, an option there. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. I, I know yeah. we had talked about that earlier. So, uh, well, Robbie, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. I Thank know you're you. Extremely Thank you. busy person. So <laughs> I appreciate you doing that and uh, I look forward no, it's to my, it. It's my pleasure. I, I appreciate you asking. And uh, again, my, my, uh, my pleasure to be on. And congratulations again for the awards. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I do appreciate that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com, iTunes, or the Air Medical Today YouTube channel. Air Medical Today is also on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and you can find the links on the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor or provide feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. You can follow Stan on Facebook at facebook.com slash stanley.reeves.39. Take care and fly safe.